Welcome to EMG Transformations with Dan Stoll. Each episode will empower you to ignite your inner fire and provide methods to maximize your mental and physical performance. You never know how one valuable insight can make such a big impact. Please leave a five-star review if this episode leaves a positive impact on you. And don't be shy to screenshot and share episodes on social media that you find helpful so we can spread the message and make the world a better place. You never know who may need to hear and the impact it has on them too. We're only scratching the surface. There's so much more to learn. Subscribe and stick around to manage stress, improve your health, and create lasting lifestyle changes. Buckle up and get ready to spark your transformation with Nova Fusion. Welcome to EMG Transformations. Today I have the pleasure of featuring Ed Cohen. Ed is an author, university professor, and survivor. At age 13, he was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, a chronic, incurable condition that we share and is close to my heart as I seek to bring awareness and help as many people struggling in similar situations. Ed's illness induced a near-death experience in his early 20s, and to everyone's surprise, that was the moment that sparked his healing. Today, we will talk about his resilient story, the lessons learned on his 50-plus year journey battling IBD, and the art of healing. Thank you for taking time to come on the podcast today. No, it's my pleasure. Yeah, so before we dive into the details of your journey, do you mind first educating our listeners on what Crohn's disease actually is? <laughs> well, so the way that Crohn's disease is described in the medical literature is an inflammatory bowel disease that can af- affect the entire gastrointestinal tract from your mouth to your anus. It has historically been considered to be an autoimmune illness. Although there are recent theories that are now considering it to be what's called an auto-inflammatory illness, there's still no good explanation for why Crohn's happens to those people that it happens to at the times that it happens. People can get a Crohn's diagnosis very young in life, as I did, or uh, I just am working with someone who just was diagnosed with Crohn's at the age of 64. So mostly what we can say about Crohn's is we know what its effects are because we can see the way in which people present to their gastroenterologist through their problems. And there are descriptions of the ways in which tissues are affected, There are descriptions of the kinds of biochemical phenomenon that are thought to be involved in the processes, but actually there are no good explanations for what Crohn's actually is. And, you know, that's, uh, that's not that unusual. Uh, There are now 80 to 100 illnesses that are considered to have uh, autoimmune etiologies, and it is true for all of those. For no illness that is 
characterized as having an autoimmune etiology, is there a good explanation for why it happens when it happens to the people in whom it happens? Right. Yeah. And I know when I was diagnosed, I had no idea what Crohn's disease was, what ulcerative colitis, never heard of it, didn't know what was to come. So that was a big wake up call for me. And I'm sure it was for <laughs> you as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I have a great diagnosis story. I mean, because, you know, I'm old. So um, this was, uh, well, 50 years ago. Uh, and I was 13. And I had had uh, become incontinent and had radical wasting on a cross country trip with my family. And when we got back, I started going to a lot of doctors and they didn't really know what was going on either. And I ended up in the hospital in the olden days, they would, you know, allow you to be in the hospital for testing. And so I was in the hospital and eventually it was a teaching hospital, university of Maryland hospital, the team, the gastroenterological team, uh, came to my room and, and they announced I think of it as, you know, like on those HGTV shows, the reveal, you know, it's kind of like that's the diagnosis is like the reveal here, except instead of crying and going, I couldn't believe I could ever live in a house as beautiful as this, you know, you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? So uh, they say, oh, you have Crohn's disease. It's an incurable autoimmune illness. And, you know, basically you can at best hope to manage your symptoms through, you know, pharmaceuticals or surgeries, but, you know, there, it, there's nothing, you know, there's no cure. And, you know, I was 13 and, I, you know, I had a pretty big vocabulary, but autoimmunity wasn't one of my words, right? So they tried to explain it to me. And this is what they said. <laughs> First, they said, well, it's like you're allergic to yourself. And I was like, okay, not getting that, really not getting that. And so then they said, well, it's like part of yourself is rejecting itself. And that I was really like, okay, that's really very mind blowing, but I don't understand what the hell you're saying. And finally they said, well, it's like you're eating yourself alive. Okay, <laughs> get that picture. But not, first of all, that is not a good thing to say to anyone, especially not a 13 year old who's very sick. And besides the fact, it is not even nearly accurate in terms of describing what autoimmunity is. I mean, years later, I mean, I wrote a whole book on the history of immunology and like, and I was, I mean, I was just stunned that this is what they would tell me. And then immediately they started me on prednisone, massive doses, because in those days, I mean, the what's considered called the biologics, the monoclonal antibodies that are now given to people. I mean, they didn't exist. So I was put on, I lived on prednisone for 10 years and I was never told anything about the side effects. I mean, now you can just go online on drugs.com and you can find out all these things. But in the 1970s, there was no internet. I, I know most people don't even know that that was a time. Right. <laughs> it's hard to comprehend at this point. <laughs> what? You, there was no internet? No. And uh, and you couldn't, you know, unless your doctor told you this or you had access to a medical library where you could do research, you couldn't find out any of this stuff. So so I had all of the side effects of, you know, so I put on huge amount of weight. I had the cushioned face, my skin thinned, you know, I, I mean, now I, I have the cataracts, you know, I have like all of the 
uh, classic physiological symptoms. At one point, like a year or so after, you know, I started on the prednisone, I put on all this weight and my mother and I went to the doctor and my mother said, well, we're a little concerned. He seems to have put on all this weight. And the doctor said, oh, don't worry. He's just big boned. I mean, it's oh like, gosh. no, actually I'm not, you know? <laughs> like, but you know, but the worst thing in a way was that prednisone also causes psychological symptoms, right? So, you know, prednisone causes uh, depression, anxiety, mood swings, you know, these are all do well-documented and I was on massive doses and, uh, but nobody mentioned it to me at all. So basically everyone just acted like, oh, you're an adolescent. Like, you know, so uh, in fact, at one point, I, I mean, I knew something was wrong. It was, you know, obviously I was not, you know, I mean, I was incontinent. I was on drugs. I was like fat. I was just horrible, you know, and I asked my father, who was a physical chemist, and my father didn't think medicine was a real science, which it's not. Medicine's not a science. But therapy, that was just, you know, forget that. That's just made up whatever. And so I, I said to my father, send me to therapy. I want to go to therapy. And my father said, you've seen too many Woody Allen movies. That was the, I was like, <laughs> so, you know, my, I mean, this, you know, today these things would be very different. I mean, you know, I know you were just describing to me before, you know, the time of your diagnosis, and how you know you didn't know anybody who had this and but but the thing is you can now find these things out like <laughs> yeah and there are there i mean there's the crohn's and colitis foundation which never existed wasn't there when now actually there's an autoimmune illness foundation that that autoimmunity never used to be considered as a general category like what i when i was my previous book so the book I just did was this one called On Learning to Heal or What Medicine Doesn't Know. But I before that, I wrote a book about the history of immunology because I was like, because I was going back to being 13. And when I was being told, what is autoimmunity? Oh, you're eating yourself alive. I was like, okay, where did that bullshit come from? And in order to understand that, I had to go back and understand, well, where did this idea of immunity come from? And immunity is a really complicated idea. First of all, for Two, more than 2,000 years, immunity had no biological meaning whatsoever. Immunity is a legal and political concept and strategy. It's a, it was invented in ancient Rome. It was an instrument of Rome's imperial power. It's a trick. It's a legal trick. Um, immunity is a way in which the fiction that the law is universally applicable can be can be set aside for certain kinds of exceptions, but without breaking the idea of the law's universality by saying that they're legal exceptions. So basically it says, though in your case, the law doesn't have to apply, but we're gonna say that that's a legal uh, possibility. And therefore the law is applying when it's not applying. That That's what immunity is. The law is applying when it's not applying. So now like when Donald Trump, like we hear immunity is still really poor, important, right? That's why Donald Trump is going around saying, <clears throat> you know, I, I deserve immunity from prosecution because I was the president. I mean, it's still the sick thing that, but it never had a biological meaning until 
the 1880s when this guy named Eli Machnikov did this experiment that was a, a kind of aha moment for him uh, in which he took a thorn and stuck it into a starfish larva and noticed that these what we now call macrophages what he called phagocytes agglomerated around the tip of the thorn where it had been stuck into the larva and he had like this aha moment oh when the organism is attacked there is a natural system of defense right so that these phagocytes which were these amoeboid kind of uh, cells uh that they were the defense they they performed a defense function for the organism. And he was the one who named that host defense immunity. And he got that because, I, I, it, I mean, it's a complicated story, but he got that from a political context that had to do with the international negotiations around how to curb the cholera pandemic that was happening at the period. So, uh, so immunity is this like weird paradoxical concept to begin with that, then autoimmunity is like a paradox of that paradox. Right. So it's, <laughs> so like I, so kind of, and, you know, it's, I mean, the more that I thought about it, the more that I like look back at my childhood, you know, my adolescence, and that's why I refer to like, you know, my adolescence now, it's my adolescence on steroids. Uh, because, <laughs> because yeah. the whole thing was crazy. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm very lucky. I'm alive. You know, that was the best that they could do at the time. I didn't have to have, you know, I had a small bowel reception. So, you know, I mean, but uh, but basically, you know, what I discovered is that medicine knows a lot of stuff and there's even more stuff that it doesn't know. Um, right. <laughs> and that's what your new book is about. So uh, we'll definitely talk a little bit about that. But since now we know kind of what Crohn's is and what immunity is, can you share kind of your journey and how it impacted your life? And before you start, I know you're probably thinking, well, what hasn't it impacted? But um, kind of those like early experiences from your teen years to those early 20s when shit really hit the fan for you. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, um, this book was originally, this book, it's now called On Learning to Heal or What Medicine Doesn't Know, uh, in part because the publisher wouldn't let me use, yeah, thank you. Uh, use the title the original the working title was shit happens uh and um yeah there was a lot of shit uh i mean both metaphorically and literally intended, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so as i said you know i was diagnosed at 13 i started taking uh prednisone i had a you know pharmaceutically induced mental illness you know, I was incontinent. I went everywhere with my little, you know, bag of underwear and wipes. And uh, I developed this like incredible psychic power. I, I can still like intuitively find the toilet in any space that <laughs> I'm like, Woo! you know, if you ever need to know a toilet, would just ask me. And, uh, you know, I, 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 my life was, you know, I mean, I was a teenager. So on the other hand, I was in denial you know, I tried to do as much as I could, but of course, I mean, the positive thing about it was for me, because I was a young, you know, proto-queer kid and in a very homophobic time, you know, 
I mean, when I was first diagnosed, homosexuality was still pathological, according to the American Psychiatric Association. So in 1973 was when homosexuality was removed from the list of pathologies. So I, like I like to think of now as like my two pathologies, you know, but uh, that, uh, you know, the, the way in which as this like different kid, you know, growing up in a and I went to a giant high school. It was like 3,600 kids. And the the school was a factory, basically. And I was like already weird because I was like super smart and whatever. So like in my senior year, you know, out of the 900 people in my class, I was voted both biggest brain and biggest mouth. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, everything above the neck. That was me, you know. Uh, but uh you know, in my high school, they had the in the bathrooms, they had taken down all of the partitions between the toilets because the boys used to go into the bathroom to smoke. So it was really horrifying to have to go to the bathroom and have massive like diarrhea with all these boys, you know, standing around. So eventually the school nurse took pity on me and allowed me to use the one private bathroom that the menstruating girls got to use. So it was me and the menstruating girls lined up to use the bathroom, which didn't do a lot for my reputation. I mean, I, they were, I already was like the fag, whatever. But I mean, it was just really like, OK, here we go. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> the but the positive side of, the, the, of that is like I got out of having to take gym. That I mean, like in a certain way, it was the whole thing was worth it. <laughs> I, in our high school, you had to take four years of gym. I never took gym, and that was, you know, especially as a proto queer kid, you know, the locker room was not a good safe space for me. And so I'm like, you know, and retrospectively, I mean, that's the thing I think of now after forty years of therapy. I mean, I understand actually. Getting Crohn's was actually a super intelligent response to a circumstance in which I had very little control over my life in circumstances that actually were quite deleterious to the person that I have become, right? I mean, and it was a way of making my suffering visible. My parents, I mean, my parents are lovely people and whatever, but, you know, they were both... Uh, cultural Jews, atheistic, you know, very, they grew up in the depression. Like, you know, if you weren't literally dying, you know, you were just depressed or anxious. That was, that was normal, depressed, anxious. I mean, my grandmother was just like complete, you know, neurotic, uh, hypochondriacal. I mean, literally when, when I got the Crohn's, everybody was like, oh, it's like your grandmother. And I'm like, I'm like, what? You mean like I'm nuts like she is? So, but, you know, but so like actually getting a physiological manifestation that people had to pay attention to, that was really helpful. I mean, it was horrible, but it also meant that people understood that I, I was suffering, that I was in pain. I mean, it was displaced, it was somaticized, you know. I mean, and that's one of the things that I can say is like, 
you know, once I understood that there were other factors that were involved that were psychological or spiritual or cultural or, you know, uh, and could begin to work on that, then I I didn't need those symptoms anymore. Like, you know, that, and, you know, and that's instead I've come to kind of understand that when I do have symptoms, you know, I mean, I, we all get different things. I mean, I have, I still have a, you know, occlusion sometimes or, you know, I'm really bad periods. I've had fistulas or whatever, but I can now understand that. Think of it more as a barometer, you know, like, Oh, if something's happening, I'm like, Oh, that probably means something else is going on. Right. You know? <laughs> it's, it's like, smart. Oh, maybe, Hey, you know, so rather than being like, oh, this is an affliction, I'm like, oh, this was a kind of, you know, a sensitivity to a circumstance that was actually quite difficult in which I had very few resources. The only resources that I had available to work with was my own body. Like as an adolescent in the circumstances that I was in, that's that's all that I could do. I couldn't do anything else. And it wasn't conscious, you know, uh, but it it had its efficacy, you know. And then, so anyway, so that went on for basically 10 years. I was in some version of that until in my early 20s, it got really bad. Um, And I had a small bowel occlusion that caused a perforation that went undetected. And then I had massive infections that, but they were not detected uh, until I started having huge bleed outs when an abscess that was on a blood vessel in my small intestine burst. And, but they still couldn't find it because it was on the outside of the small intestine. They did every kind of imaging that they could. And at that point I was in Stanford University Hospital. So, you know, it was not a like podunk place. It was very, and, you know, when I was in the hospital, fortunately, I was in the hospital, again, having all of these diagnostic uh, tests being done, I had a massive bleed out um, that they couldn't stop. And they couldn't, you know, they were trying to, you know, get my blood pressure up enough to rush me to emergency surgery. And at that point, I had what I now understand as a sort of out of body near death thing, which, I mean, at the time I had no idea such things existed. I mean, you know, my parents were like really dogmatic atheists. I mean, in my family, my mother was a communist. My father was a physical chemist. I mean, matter was all that mattered. So like, but I knew something was going on because like, I was like up there looking down and I was calm. I was like, I was like, wow. And, you know, after all the years on prednisone and everything and being in the hospital, I was not a calm person. You know, so when I was like calm, I was like, wow, this is different. <laughs> like, 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 what? Uh, eventually, they got me to do emergency surgery. They did the small bowel resection. It turned my li- out. My liver was completely fucked up. Uh, I was, you know, ended up, I was in the ICU for a while. And then I had to be on massive doses of IV antibiotics. So I was in the hospital for a long time. And during that period of time, uh, I spontaneously started going into these trances and that was really, I mean, I had no frame of reference for this. And uh, so I didn't think anything about it. Um, I just 
you know, basically I could listen to music and I could go to this other zone where it was like sort of filled with light and somehow I could gather this light and I could, all I did was like pack it around, you know, the places that had been operated on like this, you know, because I was in pain, right? And I just thought this is pain management. And it was like, literally, I was literally like dampening. It was like, oh, I'm going to put dampers around, you know, the places that are in pain. And then I could just really fall into some super peaceful place. And anybody who's ever been in a hospital knows that that's not a hospital. Hospitals are not peaceful places. <laughs> <laughs> <That is> not- <laughs> and, uh, and at first it, it freaked the nurses out because they'd come into the room and they'd try to get my attention and I'd be dead to the world. And, you know, obviously that's not good in a hospital situation, but, uh, but then they realized that they shut off the music. I would eventually come out of it. And then it was fine. Nobody cared. And then, you know, months later, whenever weeks, months later, when I finally was leaving the hospital, I had an exit interview with my surgeon who was this very handsome, it was classic surgeon, you know, he drove this very fancy Porsche sports car and, you know, uh, and uh, he, and he said to me this thing, you know, that just like seared itself into my brain. He said, you're the sickest person I've operated on in five years who's still alive. And I have no idea how you got better so quickly. And that, blew my mind both because a it forced me to realize that I actually had almost died um that you know even though I'd had that out of body experience I mean I was 23 I wasn't thinking I was dying you know I mean I was yeah I was in denial I mean like you know I'm not I I just thought that you know okay this is another Crohn's thing you know whatever you know so so I was like okay but the second part where he said, and I have no idea how you got better so quickly. That really threw me. Because really, it was at the time, it was the, the first time that a doctor said, I don't know, to me. Um, now doctors will say, I don't know. I mean, that's a more common thing. But in the 1970s, that was not, oh, no, this is the 80s. In the 1980s, that was not a thing. Especially Stanford, you know, whatever. But that really was the... That statement really changed my life because then I was like, oh, so what else doesn't medicine know? Like, you know, that I know what they do know. And then I've I've learned a lot more about what they think they know. And also, you know, because I'm a scholar and because my way of thinking about things is how did certain ways of understanding come to make sense in the first place. I mean, that's the kind of intellectual work that I did. So I've done a huge amount of research on the history of medicine, the history of ideas about thinking about personhood, about what it means to be human, what it means to be a self. And all of those things are elements of the way in which we think about disease. But, you know, that all of that followed from that basic statement, I, I don't know how you got better so quickly i was like oh okay well let me think about that um let me think about that and let me see and then subsequently to that then i had a an epiphany (laughs) um a few months after i was let out of the hospital again they didn't tell me anything uh when you're so when you're given prednisone it can cause psychological issues 
depression, anxiety, mood swings. When you're taking off it too quickly, it can also cause mental illness, psychosis, and dissociation. Again, nobody told me. Uh, So I didn't become psychotic, thank folly, but I did become dissociated. And I had no idea. And, you know, it never occurred to me to tell my gastroenterologist. I mean, like, why would I tell my gastroenterologist that I was like feeling cut off from the world and like, but I was talking to one of my roommates one day and I was trying to explain to her what was happening and she freaked out and she's like, I can't talk to you. Go to a therapist, which was very good advice. And I went to a therapist who was the totally wrong therapist, uh, but she turned out to be the amazingly perfect therapist because five minutes into it, she just said, stop you're having a drug withdrawal. My sister has Crohn's disease. She had the same thing happen to her. And she went to this amazing practitioner and that you should go to too. And I did. And that completely changed my life. Um, I was like, uh, I, I got to, to work with an amazing person. I don't know if you know who she is, but her name is Rachel Remen. Uh, if you don't know her work, you absolutely should. Um, She is an Ivy League trained doctor. She went to Cornell. She did her residency at Sun Kettering. She was was a a pediatric endocrinologist at Stanford Hospital. Um, And uh, and she has Crohn's. Um, And she was diagnosed with Crohn's like 20 years before me. So it was, I mean, you know, compared to your experience, mine was really crude compared to my experiences. Hers was super crude. Uh, And, but at a certain point, the tension for her between being a practicing clinical physician and being a patient plus, you know, and, and then also being in Northern California where she had access to, she were, you know, she went to Esalen, which is this alternative, medical psychological healing center near Santa Cruz. Uh, She left her clinical practice in the hospital and set up a therapeutic practice on a houseboat in Sausalito, uh, working with people with chronic and life-threatening illnesses and with, as she calls them, recovering doctors. And I mean, that was just the, I was, I worked with her right when she left her clinical practice, like right at the beginning of her career. Subsequently, she became I mean, she's amazing. She wrote two New York Times bestselling books. The first one's called Kitchen Table Wisdom. And the second one's called uh, Blessings My Grandfather Gave Me. And they're both amazing. They're international bestsellers. You can buy them in the airport. They've been translated into zillions of languages. She also co-founded Commonweal, which is a comprehensive cancer care institute in Bolinas, California, Um, There's a Bill Moyer special on her um, and the center in a series called Healing in the Mind. She then became a clinical professor at UCSF Medical School. She started uh, um, a course that's called The Healer's Art uh, that's now taught in like 80 to 100 medical schools around the country. I mean, she was amazing. And I was just so, so lucky that uh, that. I found out about her and um, and that totally changed my life. I mean, she was the first doctor to to mention healing to me. 
like in all of the time that I had been radically medicalized, no, the word healing was never mentioned. It was not a thing. And when I went in and then when I had had that experience of the trances, I didn't really, I didn't tell anybody, you know, but then when I was trying to explain to her what my surgeon had said and then and she's like no that happened that was real you have to, she's like med and that she was the first one she's medicine knows many things but it does not know everything right and and she tells stories because she worked that has done a lot of work with people with cancer and she tells a story about when she was in at Sloan Kettering doing her residency and there was a someone who came in with very advanced cancer and um, was expected to die and then didn't, and then had a spontaneous remission. And then they had to have like a grand rounds to discuss why, how could this possibly have happened? Right. And, and then they came up with all these bullshit theories like, oh, well the chemo, which he wasn't on anymore, kicked in retrospectively. And so, I mean like all, you know, so, you know, it was amazing to have this person who was obviously a highly qualified, trained physician say to me, we know a lot of things. We don't know everything. Basically, and, you know, the way that my takeaway from that, which is what I now teach, is we're more than we know. That is to say, knowledge is a really important resource that human beings have evolved the capacity to develop in order to continue to go on living, to continue to live our lives. But we are more than that. Like knowledge is a resource, but it is not the only capacity that we have. It is not the only form of our intelligence. Like I always like to say, like my healing experience, I said, you know, my body was way more intelligent than my mind. My cells and my molecules and whatever, they were doing something I didn't even know existed. You know, it's like that. I nobody had mentioned to me. I didn't know. You know, it was like, and and yet there was some intelligence, you know, that was being manifest. Uh, that just you know, despite my any in, intention that I had, or I had no intention. You know, yeah. it's like I didn't know about it. So have you figured out how to tap into that natural healing? Well, first of all, uh, I mean, yes and no, yes. So what I would like to, yes, uh, in the sense that I now have faith that it happens. Like the first step, I think, and this is what I try to teach people, is that healing happens. Healing is a vital tendency that all living organisms from the first cell that sprang into existence have as a capacity. I mean, the way that biologists describe the characteristics of living organisms, all living organisms, is that they have to be bounded. So they have to have a, some kind of membrane. The, the membrane has to be permeable. It has to allow nutrients in and it has to allow toxins out. They have to be able to reproduce themselves in time and they have to have a reparative function. Like that is, that's just every living organism has that capacity or they're not living. And so, 
<laughs> but we've basically outsourced our our healing capacity to others. We've lost the understanding that healing is something that we do. And you know, and that, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. And it's rel and it's culturally isolated. Um, you know, for most of Western history, since medicine was invented, medicine was invented in the fourth and fifth centuries BCE in Greece. Uh, it was it differentiated itself from other kinds of therapeutic practices that coexisted with it. Temple healing, shamanism, you know, herbalism. I mean, there were a lot of different kinds of therapeutic practices, as there are in every culture, you know, it's like, and medicine is, it was a particular kind of practice that emerged, it emerges at the same time that philosophy and politics do. And it's based on a, a distinction that Western culture began to make uh, at that moment in history, which was this bifurcation between the realm of the gods and the realm of nature. So like in a mythic worldview, what the gods actually intervene in nature. There's no distinction, you know, between. <clears throat> so what the pre-Socratic philosophers and what philosophy itself was predicated on was the idea that the gods and, and nature are two distinct realms and that the natural realm, it has certain kinds of regularities that can be recognized and that those patterns can be made sense of by through knowledge, right? So through knowledge. So, and so medicine as a practice uh, differentiated itself from all other kinds of he healing practices by saying knowledge of natural forces are, is the best re therapeutic resource that's available, right? So that's why we, why doctors are called physicians. The word physician comes from a Greek word, phusis, which means nature. So physicians are basically the spokesmodels of nature, right? Like that's the, that, that, and that's how they still function. I mean, even more so now for the last 125 years since medicine aspired to become us, to become scientific, because for the 2000 years, 2,500 years before that, medicine was the art of healing. And what medicine could do was to support and encourage the natural power of healing. In Galenic medicine, so Hippocratic medicine was the, the Greek, the original Greek version, and Galen was the, a, a Roman Hippocratic physician who then you know, kind of wrote a lot of uh, treatises. And so Galenic, Hippocratic Galenic medicine was what was dominant in the West, uh, basically into the middle of the 19th century. And it was humoral medicine, you know, it, it was based, uh, it was sort of similar to, well, Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, you know, was based on the presumption that there are four elements, earth, water, fire, air, they're modified by the cardinal qualities, hot, cold, wet, dry, and that they're for these four humors, uh, black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm, and that what we are, and you know, our balances and imbalances among these elements, qualities, and and humors, what what illnesses are are <clears throat> uh, uh, they're they're discrasia, bad mixtures, you know. What medicine tries to do is rebalance, you know, and basically the main technologies that medicine had for 2000, 
2,500 years were lifestyle changes. The word, like in Greek, the word is dieteta. So we have this word diet. We think that that means get skinny, like, you know, whatever Kim Kardashian's doing or whatever. Dieteta actually in Greek means mode of life. In Latin, it's regime. It's the same thing. What doctors did is they count, basically they counseled you about like how you were living. What were you eating? How were your bowel movements? You know, where were you living? Were you getting enough exercise? Were you getting enough sleep? You know, how is the, and, and it was also environmental because it's elements. The elements are not just in us. We're in the world. So it's like, were you living in a place that was too damp? How is the, you know, the wind there, you know, was it too hot? Was it too cold? Uh, were, were you drinking the right things, you know, at the time when it was hot or the time when it was cold? Like, were you, you know, uh, and then they were also astrological. What are the stars saying? And so it was a very comprehensive and it was placing the person who is being treated in the world. Like there was no separation. It wasn't like the illness is in you. It's like, you're in the world and yes, you're manifesting something, but what you're manifesting is an effect of your relatedness to the world, right? It's not like encased in your skin envelope, which is the way that beginning in the late 19th century that medicine began to be practiced. That's how it shifted from being an art to being a science. And, you know, the underlying dogma, which all contemporary medicine is predicated on is what's called biochemical reductionism that basically the belief and it is a belief could be a faith that medical practitioners doctors but also nurses anybody who's trained i mean they they may personally have other understandings but their training tells them that all of the uh, capacities of a living organism can be described in terms of the regularities that can be ascribed to physics, chemistry, and biochemistry, and cellular biology. Uh, that those are the sum total of what we need to know about in order to understand how organisms exist and coexist with other organisms in the world. And my response to that is, you know, I'm really glad that they figured some of that stuff out. And it, you know, it's really, and it's really amazing. I mean, it is absolutely amazing how complicated living organisms are. And that, they, that you know, medicine is still, I mean, they're discovering things that are like, well, first of all, they're discovering things that everybody knew, first of all, that I, that's what I love. Like, like the enteric nervous system, for example. Like, do you know what you know about that? The uh, so you know the for most of the 20th century, the the dogma in medicine and and you know uh, was that the brain is the executive organ, you know, organ of the body, right? That the you know in the nervous system, everything the brain organized everything, <clears throat> and. Uh, but in the 1920s, there was this guy, I forget, I'm just getting his name right now, who was like, well, but it's weird because, you know, why then does the gut have all of these, why is it so enervated? Like, why are this all, it's nerve stuff, it's, if it's just getting orders in the brain, that doesn't, but, you know, but because this was the dogma, because, and, you know, and it was like related to the way that organizational structures in the U.S. 
were understood that they needed a chief executive and then everybody under the chief executive functioned in this way, right? And uh, so that was, nobody thought more about it really. I mean, I'm sure some people did, but in general, that was, you know, the way it was taught and way. And then, you know, in the 80s, 70s and 80s, there began to be a little more inquiry. And then what happened was that they, that psychiatrists started prescribing SSRIs, the, you know, the antidepressants to people. Um, and they don't know why they work. That's still, that's a whole other level. I mean, empirically, they are shown sort of to work in various, you know, I mean, there's a lot of conflicting data about it, but you know, literally we don't, the the biology of emotions, the biochemistry of emotions, we don't, it's really unknown. I mean, it's just, but anyway, anyway, they give people these antidepressants and then they started having uh, different kinds of bowel symptoms. They get constipated, they get diarrhea, they get bloated, they get gas, they get cramps, they get this, they get that. And they were like, ooh, why is that? <laughs> so they, they they looked at it a little closer and they started doing more you know uh you know pathological they started doing more dissections of of the gut and they realized they discovered that the gut has all the same neuroreceptors and makes all the same neurotransmitters as the brain in fact like 80 to 90 percent of the serotonin that these drugs are trying to prevent the reuptake of is produced in the gut. So then they had to be like, oh, so then that was the, called the second brain theory, right? So <laughs> it was like the brain literally was like, oh, these are the brain and the gut. And then there was this crosstalk brain, gut, gut, you know? And when I first discovered that, of course, because I have a bowel disease, so I'm like, duh, like, you know? And I'm like, and everybody in the world, I mean, who doesn't listen to your gut? What does your gut say? Go with your gut. I mean, like, we're, you know, but medicine, no, medicine was like, oh, that's just folk. You know, <laughs> no, it's like, no, actually, it's empirically verifiable. And now it's even more complicated with the microbiome, right? Because the gut microbiome is also now understood. And then also the, the, the intestinal immune system, the like 80% of the work of the immune, what we call the immune system, takes place in the gut because that's the interface between, you know, that's the place where inside and outside are not distinguished, right? Like that, your gut is where the outside is inside you. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like that I paradox. Mean, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean that. I mean, you know, really, that's my thing at a basic level: is we living organisms of which we are. Uh, at least, you know, if you're listening to this, you're, I'm assuming you're still alive, uh, that, <laughs> you know, we, we are paradoxical beings. And the problem in Western modalities of thinking from antiquity, from when medicine was first invented, was that that logic is ruled by the law, these uh, laws, Aristotelian laws of logic, the law of immunity, the law of excluded middle, and the law of non-contradiction, right? So the law of non-contradiction, it, you know, it applies to logic, but it may not apply to living organisms. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, but that's, you know, a criteria of what makes science science. And, 
you know, and that's one of the things, you know, like I try, what I try to suggest in my work and you know, especially in on learning to heal, you know, when I say, you know, we're more than we know, it's like, there are aspects to what it means to be a living organism that are not governed by the law of non-contradiction. That's why there are phenomenon that are contradictory yeah. that, yeah, <laughs> I mean, like one of the ones that I try to explain to people that people freak out about is because medicine has this investment in the idea of curing, which curing is a fantasy. There is no such thing as a cure. I mean, it's more of managing it. (laughs) Well, but I mean, cure, cure is so like what, what cure implies is that you started manifesting some kinds of physiological effects that interrupted the way that you wanted to live your life in whatever context you were in for whatever reason we don't know why they emerge and then you underwent some kind of medical treatment and as a result those symptoms disappeared and somehow you were returned to the way you were before the symptoms started, right? So that, okay, first of all, there is never going back. Like life goes forward. It does not go back. You do not return to a previous state. You And, and second of all, you have just gone through that whole experience. Like, why are you going to pretend that that didn't happen? Like right. that that changed you, something happened, right? You were like the the fantasy of cure gives over all of the power to something outside of you. And it actually negates your own experience that you just went through. And it's a fantasy. It's a desire that people have to have had nothing happen. And that's why I'm like, that's why I originally want to call this book shit happens. It's like shit happens and not and when shit happens and like uh, my friends and i we call it afco afco is short for another fucking growth opportunity like i love that <laughs> and, and it's like why would you want to negate this was an opportunity this is an opportunity it, it it's an something that was unpleasant we don't but it's an occasion in which actually you were dropped out of your life as it was going on before. And you have this period in which something else is going on. And what that period can allow you to do, I mean, of course, you need to have support, you need to have encouragement, you need to have resources. You know, and I can say this, I'm a very privileged person. I have amazing, you know, health insurance. And, you know, I have a a job. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a full professor at a university. They can't fire me. I'm like, I'm like, I, you know, who am I? I mean, many people have lived very constrained circumstances, but, you know, and, and without resources. And, and we know in the United States, I mean, like medical care is so uh, um, unequal, you know, and, and, and we know, you know, I mean, there's a zillion stories now, especially in the wake of COVID, but, but even before of how outcomes are differentiated across race, across sex, across class, across, you know, I mean, that all of that is true. I'm not, you know, but, but nonetheless, even in those circumstances, 
you know, I still believe that it's possible, not necessary and not easy necessarily, but it's possible to utilize those experiences to somehow uh, enhance the quality of your life in the circumstances in which you're living. Um, obviously, it's easier for some people, but even like if you have a lot of resources, people don't use them. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's my whole philosophy experiences plus mindset equals growth. And we go through those experiences over and over, but until that mindset shifts and we want to learn or we have the desire to do something, then we're not going to get that growth. And like you're saying, everything is a growth opportunity. It's not going to be like that until you have that mindset shift. And then you can start taking advantage of those experiences. No, absolutely. Well, that's why my book is called On Learning to Heal, because learning is an essential aspect of healing. Right. You never heal the same way twice. You, huh. you always have to learn, like you always have to learn to heal at every moment. And so, you know, that's like for me, learning, healing, growing, developing, maybe evolving are all different aspects of our vital capacities as yeah. living organisms. And unfortunately, we live in a culture that doesn't value those. Like the, you know, what Irving Goffman, who's a very famous sociologist, did this work in the middle of the 20th century, where he said he described what he calls the sick role, the, the role of the sick person. What's the role of the sick person? To get better, to become productive again. Right. So the most important value in our insane pathological culture is making money to make profit either for yourself. But mostly most of us work to survive, to make profit for somebody else. Right. <laughs> That's like the. Yeah. And like the idea that healing is a value like that's you know my main you know, hashtag now healing is value. Uh, you know, that, that, you know, it's like, if we don't know that healing is valuable, we don't know that it's possible to know it's valuable. If we don't desire it, right. It still can happen. Like I'm, I'm like a living proof. Like I had zip idea that it's a thing yeah. and it can happen. But if we desire it, if we value it, if we're willing to grow and learn, then it becomes easier. We actually can allow ourselves to have access to other kinds of resources that help to support and encourage that capacity, which is our birthright. Like mm -hmm. it is our birthright to heal. Everybody who is alive now knows something very important about healing. We just don't know that we know it. Yeah. <laughs> I and mean, that's why I say, you know, so my thing is don't outsource your healing. Don't give it away. Right. Yeah. Understand that there are professionals who, who have expertise that can support and encourage you in the process. But you are, you know, you, it, the process is you. And like, it, it is you. It, it's your life, you know. It's like this is happening and and your life is happening in a context of of your your family, your community, your nation, 
I mean, I, you know, healing is also, you know, I mean, one of the things I'm always aware of when I'm talking about it is it can seem very individualistic, like I'm healing. No, it's like healing is always a collective phenomenon. We only heal in context. There is, I mean, my basic thing is there is no individual. There's only an individual in a context. Like, it's like the same thing. There's no baby. There's only a baby and an adult. Like a baby by itself is dead. Like there is no individual without a context. There, it, it's just that it can't happen. And the contexts are material, but they're also cultural, they're economic, they're political, right? And at this point, we're we're highly aware of this. I mean, this is what COVID should have taught everybody, right? That being an in the idea of being an individual is biologically counterfactual, right? <clears throat> we are connected to each other all the time. Like the example I'm always using is like at the beginning of the COVID <clears throat> when they didn't really understand like how it was, you know, being disseminated. And uh, <clears throat> they told us not to touch each other. And it was, people were really freaked out. And why? Because we touch each other all the time, you know? Yeah. And in fact, the word contagion means touching together. <clears throat> That's what it is. And and epidemics and pandemics only happen in complex human contexts, right? Hunter-gatherers did not have epidemics. <laughs> I mean, if a little group got something and they all died, they died. It didn't go anywhere else. It was right. just like, you know, and then, you know, and then, and really, we even like the infectious diseases, like like the COVID or like any like the H five N one, you know, bird flu that's going around now. I mean, basically, these are things that are created because of the ways that we coexist with other organisms. So until fixed agrarian settlements, pigs and birds would not have lived in the same place, right? And so then they would not have lived in the same place as humans. Now, I mean. The way they described like the H1N1 virus, that was like the last epidemic. The pigs were called porcine mixing vessels. And the idea was like that there was these viruses that moved from birds to pigs and then from pigs to humans. But the reality is in the same thing with COVID, like I, I wrote an article about this, but I'm like, you know, pigs don't fly. Like the way, so what we, we moved the bar. We did that. We, yeah, yeah. we did. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. You know, when when I talk about healing, I mean, I know it, it can sound like it's happening at the level of the individual, but it, it happens at every level. I mean, like a, you know, like with like you know autoimmune illnesses, for example. It's like we don't know, but it seems like there's a hell of a lot of toxicity in the world right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, in our foods, there's plastics, you know, we live in environments with, you know, air pollution and, and different, and these forever chemicals. And you think about, well, okay, we, we, you know, our, our flesh can get toxified, but the planet's being toxified, right? I mean, it's like, you know, we need healing at so many levels. We need healing at a physiological level. We need healing at you know, community levels, we need healing at psychological levels, community levels, at, you know, societal levels, we need, you know, 
at planetary levels and it can happen. Like I, I love the example of <clears throat> the hole in the ozone layer, right? Like when I, you know, like in the, in the late latter 20th century, that was, oh my God, there's a hole in the ozone layer, which was like really bad. And then they're like, oh, well, let's, you know, let's ban fluorocarbons and and guess what? The hole's gone away. It's like, okay. Yeah. I mean, look, the planet can heal. I mean, it's like healing right. is a general phenomenon, right? But right. we don't value it. Like if we don't value it, we can't support and encourage it, right? No. If we desire it. Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say, I think we look for medicine to do the healing instead of Absolutely. just recognizing that we have that own natural power to heal ourselves. And we want that quick fix rather than discovering what we're really capable of. And, you know, you talk about that and how to do it and how to tap into that. And that's what I want to bring more awareness for. Um, you know, something in your book that really fascinated me was your connection with trees, because oh. <laughs> you, well, you mentioned how you haven't heard healing from the doctors or any of the medical people. But in your book, you said the trees helped you realize that you have the capacity to heal and I was just really fascinated by that. And I'd love for you to just mention that real quick, if you could. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's something, well, I grew up around trees. Trees have been always very good to me, uh, <clears throat> but I didn't really think about it. I had a, I had a very profound experience after I was released from the hospital and as part of the learning to heal process where I was in the woods one day and I felt something it was as if like I felt something coming to me through me and it was a very clear message and I was just like okay and it basically was like look you can keep living the way you've been living and probably you'll go through what you just went through in some form or another, or you can learn some other ways to live. I mean, it was just like really clear. And I was like, you know, it was like the trees were speaking to me kind of thing. And, you know, I was really obvious. I was like, I'm going to pick the second choice. You know, I was like, and I always just, you know, I mean, I always just thought, okay, I'm a little bit tree huggy anyway, you know, like whatever. But then I read this great book by Victoria Sweet, who is a doctor and also a historian of medicine. And she wrote a book called God's Hotel. That's a beautiful, amazing book. And she was a practitioner, clinician in a hospital, well, it was a, a, a hospital hospital called Laguna Honda in San Francisco that was the last alms house in America that is the last institution of last resort it was like where people would go basically when they couldn't go anywhere else and she worked with very destitute people <laughs> and in that context she saw things happening that she couldn't make sense of through her medical training she had gone to Stanford University medical school I mean she's highly trained and she discovered the work of this 12th century nun, Hildegard of Bingen, who was an amazing person. Hildegard of Bingen was a mystic. She was a musician. She was a theologian. 
And she was also a medical practitioner and she was a gardener because in that period of time, you know, most of the the pharmacon that was available in the pharmacopoeia were minerals or plants. So it was like plant medicine. And she used this concept uh, called veriditas, um, which means greening. You know, veridity is greenness, veriditas is like the greenness of plants. It's a concept, Aristotle talks about it. It was a concept in Christian thought, early Christian thought as well. But she utilizes in in this way that also has this valence that is about our existence as living organisms that, and our capacity to heal. The Veritas is a capacity to heal. <laughs> and what uh, Victoria Sweet says that she learned in working in with these destitute people and especially very very ill people is that that the pathway to healing really was facilitated by removing the obstacles mm. to the capacity to flourish, right? That's like, like lifestyle adjustments, right? Absolutely. That's what, you know, so or that's what medicine originally began. You know, that's, a, we forget, you know, that's the thing is like not, it's, a, you know, I'm a history nut, but, but if we know where the things that we now take for granted, that seem self-evident to us came from, then we can understand why it is that we think the ways that we do. And then maybe perhaps understand that there's certain kinds of limitations on how we imagine the world that aren't necessary. Like that we're looking at things with blinders on, you know, and we can see this way, but there, when if you have peripheral vision, actually that gives you a much better capacity to orient yourself in the world, right? And so the, just the, idea that you know trees heal themselves you know but there's this just this sense of vitality of of the vital capacity that exists in the world around us you know and if we have eyes to see it you know if we i mean it really is it that's why i keep coming back to the value and desire if we don't desire it if we don't value it we just walk right by it Mm. it doesn't you know, we have to we have to have attention and we have to have intention. I mean, I love that. I mean, I'm an you know a word nut too, besides a history nut. I mean, attend, intend, all the tend words, tend, tendency, it all it's a Latin word that means to stretch. Okay. Right. So so to intend is to stretch towards something. Yeah. Right. Like we are you stretch yourself. When you attend, you know, you place, you stretch with something, you know, it's like the, we're always growing, we're always developing, we're always healing. I mean, even up to and including when we're dying. I mean, that's one of the things that really freaks people out when I say, sometimes dying is healing. I mean, we'll all die. I mean, that's a thing, right? One of my teachers, (laughs) one of my main teacher says this thing and I try to share this with everyone. It's like, look, death will come for us all. When it comes for you, make sure that you're as alive as you possibly can be. Mm. That's good. I'm like, okay, that's, that's a really good ethic. 
<laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I live by the the saying "memento mori," so you know remember uh-huh. that death is coming and that you're mortal. And so I just try to make, especially with the experiences that I've had, just to make the most out of every day because you never know with the chronic illness like this, if it can creep back on you. So you don't want to live those days where you're held back. You just want to make the most out of everything because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You just don't. So um, every day is a new life. And that's also another saying that I live by and just to make the most out of everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and that's a value statement, you know, and it's really different than, the dominant value statement of our culture, which, as I said before, is make money, make profit. Maybe, you know, get a viral TikTok. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what have been some of those lifestyle adjustments that have really helped you on your healing journey? The value orientation is the most significant thing. Everything else derives from that. And and also, like, to use that somehow often feel like ashamed or like they don't want people to know that they have anything going on or I'm like, no, I'm like, fucking use it. Like I'm I'm like, I mean, okay. Again, I'm very privileged. I'm a university professor, but I got a disability diagnosis and you know, I'm in, I'm, you know, and I'm like, and I use that. I'm like, I don't teach before 2 30 in the afternoon i teach two days a week you know it's like i do i organize you know i mean it's like use your experience to create the kind of life that will allow you to flourish if you can if you can use it to set boundaries like no that deadline that's not that important you know i mean i'll get it done but you know don't stress me out, you know, like, don't like, you know, I mean, to really like be like, okay, what's most important. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously I need my job and need my health insurance need my house, need my whatever <clears throat> doing all that shit, but in a way that doesn't compromise my well being, Right. So that's a, so there's many particular things that I do. Like, I mean, if I was going to say, Someone asked me this. What's your what's your biggest life hack? <laughs> like my biggest life hack is sleeping. Mm. I I am like do not I I do not get less than eight hours of sleep. I take many naps. Like resting is really important. That you know part of the like we have to be doing, we have to be the fear of missing out. Uh, we need to be productive. You know, it's like bullshit. It's like, no, you can. And actually when you're rested, guess what? You actually can do more stuff in less time if you're actually rested. And you, and if you're not, and if you're feeling well rather than not well, you know, so like if you start feeling that well, lie down. Like that's, you know, I mean, <laughs> Also, you know, like try to inquire what are the what are the circumstances within which, you know, certain kinds of symptoms have manifest themselves in your life. Right. And if you can think of them in the framework of this is not an affliction, 
but this is something that's emerged from the tapestry that I have been weaving, you know, for my life. Like, how's, how did this work? It seems weird, but how does how has this been working for me? And is there some way that I can utilize, you know, my intention to realize the the results that I was trying to get without manifesting the symptoms that I was using unconsciously. Like, so I'm a big fan of psychotherapy. I'm like, get yourself to therapy. To work work with someone who, I mean, I have a counseling practice called Healing Counsel, where I work with people with chronic and life-threatening illnesses precisely for this reason. So we, we don't realize what resources we have. We don't realize that the things that that seem to be afflicting us actually might be presenting us with new opportunities, you know, that, you know, so that to have a sense of curiosity about what this is, like, why is this happening now? Not, I mean, people really go to, why is this happening to me? Why is that me? You know, (laughs) it's like, it's happening because you're a living person, you know? It's like, but why is this happening now? Like, it didn't happen before. You know, it may have been building up, but it's something's happening. So why now? What's going on? So, uh, you know, but I do, you know, I mean, as I like to say to people, there's, there's thousands of doors. You have to walk through one. You know, you can find there. I do every kind of body work. I find that for me, it's really super helpful. I've done every kind of yoga, tai chi, you know, Feldenkrais, Rolfing. I do a practice called Continuum. I find all of those to be incredibly helpful. I mean, there's a, there's so many things one can do, but the most important thing is just to begin by making the decision to be curious to see if you can desire to live otherwise. Um, And then whatever the particular things are, diet or, I mean, I'm not gonna compromise on the sleep, but like the, (laughs) but you know, there all of the other things that, you know, people do, you know, supplements. I mean, I love the, I love the supplements. I love the acupuncture. You know, I mean, I, I mean, you know, there's many, many things, you know, therapeutic techniques that that you can utilize but most importantly it's like don't outsource your healing take take responsibility yeah i love how you talk about the desire because that truly is the first step to wanting that healing and receiving it because your body does the work we don't do the work our body just automatically does it and you know another thing is we just don't know what we don't know but we have to take that accountability to realize that there might be other things that could ex- or enhance our life. And then there's things that we're probably doing that are crippling us right now that are holding us back. So we have to get that awareness and that accountability to really weed those out. And then we'll see it, start seeing those results and the transformation. It's not going to be instant. It's going to be a process. But once we can do that weeding out of the garden, essentially, that's where those like all those tweaks will really develop into something that you feel and you're you're going to 
I think I read in your book that healing is like a process and it's not, it's not a result. It's a day by day process. A hundred days later, you're still healing. And then one day you're healed, but it's kind of hard to like, you can't map that out in a sense. It's just healing is healing. Right. Well, I, I think, I think say healing makes time matter. Like mm, literally. Yeah. I love that. Healing is a matter of time. You know, that's why I wrote a book called On Learning to Heal. It's like, I'm a teacher. So that's, you know, that's my thing. I'm all about the learning, you know. And this is just, not just, but illness can present us with an occasion to learn to live otherwise. If you're not interested in learning, then it will be much more challenging. And you will then offload you're healing to others and want them to take responsibility. <clears throat> if you're willing to learn, I mean, my, you know, I have like all kinds of personal little things, but, you know, because I'm a teacher, because I love to learn. <clears throat> the reason I'm a teacher is I love to learn. And then the best thing about learning is sharing what I've learned with others. That's just, you know, that simple. And uh, so the way that I frame it for myself is, you know, what is the healing? What is the learning? What is the healing that birth took me for in this life? I don't know that that's, you know, I'm not knowing, you know, it's not like a mystical thing. It's just like, this is an ethical framework. I make an assumption. I act as if, as if, uh, you know, in what is my life for? My life is for learning and healing. Yeah. When I make that my orientation, then I can see the world in particular ways. Resources appear to me because I am looking in that way. Right. That's the um, reticular I'll... activating system, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I know that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. So I got one last question. Thank you so much for taking the time to be thorough with your answers. It's been very helpful for me and the audience. Uh, one last thing before we wrap things up. I love this question. If you could sit down and give advice to your 13 year old self or just your newly diagnosed self in those early stages, what would you say to him? Oh, um, don't believe everything your doctors tell you. It's a great start. <laughs> yeah. That's part, you know, part of what I try to explain to people is when, <clears throat> when we receive a diagnosis, when we receive treatments, we're not just getting techniques or, you know, interventions, or we're also being given ways to think. Yeah. That, you know, like what I try to, you know, when I was taking all of that prednisone, you know, along with the bitter pills that I would swallow every day, I was taking in certain ideas about what it meant to be a living being. I mean, I think, I, you know, the way I think about it now is it's sort of like a medical communion. Like you're, you're taking in, you know, the, the spirit of medicine and some of medicine's ways of thinking are very helpful, but not all of them. So you have to understand, yeah, medicine doctors do their best, but they're trained in certain ways. If we accept you know, the resources that they're able to offer us, but understand that there are, are lots of other things that we can do and that, that 
we can make choices for ourselves to support and encourage this capacity that is our birthright. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's so good. And I know that can save a lot of people uh, a lot of time, pain, and uh, just sorrow because we get uh, a lot of the wrong recommendations. And, you know, at the end of the day, we know what's best for ourselves and our bodies. And we have to trust ourselves and listen to our intuition, listen to our gut, like you said, that's our second brain. So yeah, I think that's so important. And I'm glad you touched on it because I wish I could go back and, you know, change some things, but, you know, I wouldn't be the person I am today, but I know that it would have saved me a lot of heartache and possibly even surgery. Um, You know, like you just never know how one thing can lead to the next and a life determining decision can be the result of that. So you really want to put your health in your own hands and do your own research, ask other questions and just be curious. Like you said, Um, that really goes a long way to your healing. And again, the desire to heal. I think that's such an important topic that we really need to strive for and really take in and take ownership of that and not just want that quick fix and outsource it to medicine or doctors. We need to do that work ourselves. So I think this conversation was a great eye opener for anyone out there going through a situation to show them that they can switch the tables and put the power back in their hands. No, absolutely. And to seek out people who, you know, support you in that process. I mean, that's why, you know, I started my counseling practice. You know, I have 50 years of experience of of living with this and, and, you know, not a lot of people do. And, to find people who will help you, who will support you. I mean, because though, you know, healing is our birthright, we do it with others, right? And so, you know, having having a, a community, having a network, you know, and then also like understanding that, you know, healing for yourself is also healing for others and it's healing for the planet. Yeah. Like, we're all part of this, you know. And the more that, you know, we all focus, not just on our individual healing, but understanding that healing is a value, you know, the ozone layer can heal, you know, how, how do we, you know, make those choices that are about enhancing our capacity to live more vital lives? Yeah, that's so good. I know you got the book out, but let us know how else you can we can support you. Uh, books right here on learning how to heal. So if anyone, I'll drop the Amazon link. Here's a first look of it so you know what you're getting. And uh, yeah, just let us know how we can stay connected with you and what you're working on now. Yeah, so I mean, if people are interested, you can look at my website. It's healingcouncil.com. Uh, it explains my practice. And uh, it also, you can buy my book through there. You can also listen to a bazillion podcasts that I've done, if this hasn't been enough. Um, And uh, yeah, and On Learning the Hill is a trade book. You can get it in bookstores near you as well as at Amazon. So, um, and I'm happy to, yeah, communicate with people. If you want to be in touch, uh, there's a link on my website. You can write to me and I will be happy to respond to you. 
Awesome. I'll uh, drop all those links in the show notes as well to make it easier for everyone to heal their lives and get on the right track with that. But yeah, Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me today and being vulnerable to share your story and the insights that you learned on your journey. You are a role model and beacon of hope for those battling Crohn's disease and anyone going through a tough time. You've been through it and it's inspiring to show that others can get through that other side. It's been an honor and I can honestly say that the world is brighter because of your light. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast. (laughs) Oh, thank you for having me. That was beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, I got one more question and then I'll uh, let you get on with the rest of your day. What are you cooking for dinner back there tonight? Oh, it's, uh, this is a salad day, I think. Okay. I'm going to make, actually I'm going to make chicken probably too. I have some chicken to make. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Salad is one of the things I can't eat anymore. And really, oh, I wish I could have a good Caesar salad every now and Mm. then. Have you tried the um, <clears throat> uh, digestive enzymes? Uh, I'll do like some papaya stuff every now and then, but... 15 HCL. Okay, what, what uh, was that again? TH... It's called beta teen HCL. I can okay. show you. Here. It's great. I mean, it really is very helpful. Um, you know, try it, you know, and then as you as we age everybody should take it it's uh we you your digestive uh enzymes the you begin to diminish the efficacy you know of digestion but um yeah but try it i don't know i'm not gonna say have it and have a salad but but that's what i do it's like i mean because i also don't have like enough you know to have a salad really but um but if i take a bunch of these and then have a salad i can have it it's good Are you ready to take charge of your health and transform your life? Well, get ready because we have the solution for you. Introducing the Nova Fusion 21 Day Wellness and Resilience Challenge. The ultimate program designed to stack massive momentum, achieve peak performance, and spark your transformation. In just 21 days, you can experience a total wellness revolution. Our challenge is jam-packed with daily inspiration, education, downloadable resources, and exciting challenges to keep you fired up and on track. But that's not all. When you join the challenge, you'll also become a member of our exclusive Nova Fusion family. Together, we'll support and uplift one another as we continue to grow and thrive. Unlock the secrets of the world's best wellness and resilience practices to stay mentally and physically fit for a lifetime. From renewing healing practices to transformative high-performance techniques, we've got you covered. And here's something that sets us apart. I believe in these practices so much that I'm offering a money-back guarantee. That's right, if you don't see results, you can get your money back so you have absolutely nothing to lose, but everything to gain. So what are you waiting for? Take advantage of this limited time opportunity right now. Go to novafusion.co slash challenge to sign up and embark on the journey of a lifetime. 
Let's spark your transformation together. I can't wait to see you on the other side.